This week, is enthusiasm for interdisciplinary research all talk? Lots of people say, oh yes, we love interdisciplinary research, we want to support it, but the interdisciplinary projects are not getting funded. And 20 years on, what was the impact of Dolly the Sheep's birth on biology? I don't think she signified a revolution. I would, neither would I say she's just a sheep. <laughs> Plus, hundreds of social scientists get together to synthesise research on war, terrorism, inequality, and lots of other thorny topics. Wish them luck. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 30th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Nearly 20 years ago, on the 5th of July 1996, Dolly the sheep was born, the first mammal cloned from an adult cell. Seven months later, her scientist parents announced her to the world. Ewan Calloway looks back over the media storm that ensued and considers Dolly's legacy. Monday, February the 24th, 1997. The most talked about news story of the day came from a farm in Scotland because Dolly the sheep was making her media debut. Hello, Dolly. Dolly is the name of the first mammal, yes, a sheep ever to be born as the result of cloning. Dolly was by this point a healthy seven-month-old sheep. She was made when the nucleus of an adult cell was fused with an egg cell whose own nucleus had been removed. It was a remarkable scientific feat. But the media storm she provoked wasn't really about her. Humans are more self-centered than that. It was about us. If a lamb, why not a man? Are we acting more like the creator than creatures? Are we trying to play the role of God in all this? Human cloning will take place, and it'll take place in my lifetime. And I don't fear it at all. People's imaginations sort of ran ahead of themselves. This is Harold Shapiro, who headed up the U.S. National Bioethics Advisory Commission, which was charged with thinking about the repercussions of Dolly. When I asked uh, the question to uh, people we spoke to and so on, what did you do when you first heard about this? The vast majority in the U.S. who did anything called their minister or their priest or their rabbi to wonder what to think about this. People talked about could we clone Einstein or Mozart or someone, and they really thought this was a court of genuine possibility. Many people jumped ahead of the science. How close are scientists to cloning humans? Should they? And how would it work? But cloning wasn't the ultimate intention of the Dolly project. The goals of the scientists uh, who created Dolly were very different from that. That's historian Miguel Garcia Sancho at the University of Edinburgh. He's been looking into Dolly's story. What the team at the Rosalind Institute were really after, he says, was a way to make transgenic livestock. What they wanted was to insert in the genetic material of the sheep a foreign gene, so a gene that was not originally from sheep, and to produce sheep with an additional uh, feature compared to their ancestors. The scientists wanted to tweak the sheep genes so that they could pump out proteins in their milk that could be used to make medicines for conditions like hemophilia or cystic fibrosis. But they decided first to clone an animal from an ordinary cell before moving on to genetically modified clones. In order to produce this genetically modified sheep, they needed to create a, a, an artificial embryo. So uh, Dolly was a, a step towards that. The team took the next step soon after Dolly's birth by inserting a foreign gene into a sheep cell and then cloning it. A lamb that made a human blood coagulation factor was born in 1997 and christened Polly. But it was Dolly who still preoccupied the media and the public. 
Harold Shapiro was busy working on a report about cloning, commissioned by the U.S. president at the time, Bill Clinton. The reason why President Clinton asked our commission to report to him within 90 days on what public policy should be in this area was, I think, really to calm down. People were suggesting all kinds of bizarre laws, regulations, and so on relating to the scientific frontier. And I think the main reason he turned to us at that time was to be able to say, look, we're going to think about this carefully and uh, we'll see what we'll do in three months. Uh, So that's how I would characterize the kind of public at large feeling at that time. Shapiro's team recommended a ban on human reproductive cloning, but he says Dolly didn't raise any ethical issues that were new to them. The basic ethical issues remain the same. And it's to what extent human progress has a limit or doesn't have a limit or or should have a limit or shouldn't have a limit. And uh, that issue hasn't gone away. Uh, It was there uh, before cloning and it's thereafter. Perhaps Dolly's biggest contribution was to inspire scientists to think about reprogramming, winding cells back to an embryonic state. These days, they can reprogram cells without cloning an animal first, and cloning itself is now a bit niche. Garcia Sancho again. There is commercial cloning of uh, pedigree dogs, of um, especially fit animals. So it is so, something that is still uh, used. Um, is something that is no longer uh, needed uh, to produce uh, embryonic stem cells, at least in principle, or at least uh, lots of different embryonic stem cells. So it is a practical uh, thing. If we, don't use, uh, if we don't need it, and it is something that creates uh, ethical concerns, well, what's the point of using it? I asked Shapiro and Garcia Sancho if they could identify a modern-day equivalent to Dolly. Their answers were practically clones of one another. The first thing they both said was the gene editing technique, CRISPR. I think uh, quite a recent development that uh, will be fascinating to explore from a historical perspective in 10, 20 years is CRISPR. Uh, So now we have CRISPR. We're going to edit the genome and so on and uh, be able to take charge of our own evolution. It's the same old issue. It's the same kind of issue from an ethical point of view. And my guess is that maybe most of the debates we are having now around CRISPR are quite disconnected uh, with what scientists want to do with that. Dolly the sheep created no cloning revolution. Fears that humans would be cloned never came to pass. And while Dolly may not have raised any new ethical problems, her creation showed just how exquisitely researchers could tinker with animal reproduction. Here's Harold Shapiro. I don't think she signified a revolution. Uh, I wouldn't either would I say she's just a sheep. (laughs) That was Harold Shapiro, who headed up the Dolly Report by the US National Bioethics Advisory Commission in 1997. And you also heard from Miguel Garcia Sancho at the University of Edinburgh. Ewan has put together an oral history of the day Dolly was made, told in the words of her creators. That's over at nature.com slash news. There's also a video where we talk to two of the embryologists who made her. Find that at youtube.com slash nature video channel. Coming up late in the show, doing science across different disciplines may be trendy, but it's a pain getting it funded. Plus, we've got an update on the fallout from Brexit in the news chat. First, though, scientists love a good international panel. Perhaps the best known is the IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. 
But there are plenty more on biodiversity, chemical pollution, sustainable food systems. The list goes on. The idea is to pull together a lot of complex research and present it to policymakers in bite-sized hundreds of pages. But now there's a new panel in town. It's focusing on social science. It's called the IPSP or International Panel on Social Progress. Noah Baker spoke with one of its co-founders, Princeton economist Mark Flaubert. Mark started by explaining where the idea for the panel came from. So the IPSP is initially a network of uh, of colleagues and friends and uh, scholars who uh, thought that um, there are many panels of experts uh, studying important issues, uh, important challenges like the climate problem, but many many uh, such panels are focused on on very specific issues and they don't really have the bird's eye view on how society is going. So we 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 felt that there was a need for. Uh, something that was more focused on the social institutions and on the long-term evolution of these of these institutions. How does an organisation like this work? Who's involved? So we have about um, 260 authors, and uh, they work on 22 chapters. So the report will be a big book, and uh, this team is interdisciplinary and has people from various uh, regions of the world. Can you give me an idea about what kind of subject areas we're talking about, what kind of issues you're hoping to tackle in these chapters? Yes, so it's very simple, everything. <laughs> so that's the usual joke that we have. Um, so it's, it's, it's a bit true. So we have three parts, um, uh, one on uh, socioeconomic uh, aspects. We have one part on um, governance issues, the more uh, political aspects. And finally, we have a third part, which is quite substantial, uh, about the uh, value issues and the issues having to do with social bonding and identity uh, considerations on religions, uh, chapters, on family and sexuality, and this sort of thing. What's the overall aim of the IPSP? What are you seeking to achieve as an organization, as a report? The aim is simply to uh, bring ideas to the public debate, so we uh, don't expect that we will have an immediate influence on governments. That's not the goal. We hope to have a long-term influence on ideas. And I think that the context is uh, perhaps an important part of what motivates the aim. Um, we feel that there is a lack of vision nowadays in uh, where societies are going. There has been a lot of research uh, on the virtues and the failures of these various institutions, um, but uh, perhaps not enough has been done in terms of conveying this academic corpus to uh, to the uh, citizens and to the decision makers. And of course, trying to understand social progress, you're, you're in an international panel, so I assume part of that is trying to generate an international panel of people to work on it. Is this something that, that's, that's come easily or is there, is there more to do? So we have people from more than uh, 40 countries. I must confess that it has been a bit of a battle uh, because um, we have a distribution of academic work in the world that is... Uh, uh, very skewed. So we cannot um, claim, unfortunately, that we have a panel that is representative of the world population. It is somewhat representative of the world academic population, which is uh, quite concentrated in the north. But we have made a lot of efforts, and so we hope that uh, the contents of the report will really be sensitive to the perspectives of the various regions of the world. And one thing that's happened on the day of recording, I'm sitting in London in our nature offices and we've just had the the results of the EU referendum that's been held and the, the country at large has voted, um, a majority has voted to leave the EU. I wonder what your reaction to, to this 
is and how you think that this might play into the kind of panel that you're you're creating? Yes, I, like many others, uh, I'm worried and we are worried. Uh, I can tell you when we really started thinking about the IPSP, that was about three years ago, um, we didn't have uh, the perspective of the Brexit. We didn't have ISIS. We didn't have the migration crisis to the same extent. We didn't have Russia in Ukraine, and we didn't have Donald Trump in the U.S. So, uh, you see, uh, the situation is becoming more and more worrisome, and um, especially what is happening in Europe is something that has to do probably with this lack of vision for the future, um, of positive vision. We hope that we will convey some ideas about how to combine uh, globalization and openness of markets with uh, the possibility of protecting citizens and protecting workers uh, against the, uh, the volatility of, uh, of the economy. We could ask the question, uh, is IPSP becoming irrelevant because the mounting challenges uh, now put so much pressure on decision makers that they cannot uh, any longer think about the long-term uh, future or social progress in a very positive way? But perhaps the uh, best and better answer is that uh, we are becoming more relevant because making efforts uh, in the direction of social justice is perhaps the condition to be able to address the various challenges that we are now facing and that are becoming more and more uh, threatening. That was Mark Flaubert. Check out his comment piece at nature.com forward slash news. In just a minute, we'll bring you the results of a study into interdisciplinary science. Projects that span disciplines get a lot of praise, but how easy is it really to get them off the ground? First, it's time for the research highlights with Corrie Locke. Mammals, birds and reptiles are easily recognised by their fur, feathers and scales. It turns out that these skin appendages have a common evolutionary origin. Researchers in Switzerland looked at skin development in the embryos of crocodiles, snakes and lizards they found that the reptile's scales grew out of a specific group of cells that appear only briefly during development. These are the same cells that give rise to feathers in birds and hair in mammals. The cells all express the same developmental genes, suggesting that they were inherited from a shared ancestor. The study is from the journal Science Advances. Mosquitoes can cause disease by transmitting viruses to people, but their bites can make the infection even worse. Researchers exposed mice to mosquitoes and mosquito-borne viruses. They found that the inflammatory response in the skin after a bite made the virus better able to multiply and infect cells in the body. The researchers say that preventing certain immune cells from reaching the site of an insect could be a way to combat viral diseases spread by mosquitoes. Find out more from the journal Immunity. Most often here on The Nature Podcast, our stories are about pieces of research. But this next piece is a story about a piece of research that's about research. It's all getting a bit meta. Here's Shamini Bundell to explain. When it comes to what's hot or not in the field of scientific research, these days interdisciplinary projects are most certainly in the hot category. I asked one of the authors of the paper in this week's Nature, Lyndall Bromham, how she ended up doing research into interdisciplinary research. I've done a lot of interdisciplinary research myself in the past. I'm an evolutionary biologist and I've worked with a, a range of different people from philosophers to linguists, mathematicians, virologists, even vets. So I've had a bit of experience with interdisciplinary research. So I was invited to take part in a workshop 
on interdisciplinary funding and the focus of this workshop was the concern that people had that interdisciplinary research, while often encouraged by funding bodies, is simply not being funded. I'm quite surprised because I've heard so much about it and people saying that it's such a great thing that I just assumed there would be lots of funding available for it. Some people have called this the paradox of interdisciplinarity, that lots of people say, oh yes, we love interdisciplinary research, we want to support it, but in practice the interdisciplinary projects are not getting funded. But that's obviously a really tricky thing to actually prove. How do you even quantify interdisciplinarity? So yes, we felt that we needed to be able to quantify it because it's quite hard to test unless you can actually measure interdisciplinarity. So the Australian Research Council made available to us de-identified grant proposal data and they also provided us with the research codes that those proposals had selected. So, for example, there's a a biology code, and within that code, there's a zoology code, and within the zoology code, there'll be codes for things like cell biology or animal behaviour. So that tells you how closely related the different fields of research are in the proposals, which is part of your measure of interdisciplinarity, and then you compared that with whether the project got funded or not. What were the results? So we found that no matter how we analysed the data projects that had a high interdisciplinarity score had lower success rates than those that had a more narrow disciplinary focus. So this is really the first empirical proof that's been provided that this this idea that everyone has suspected for a long time that interdisciplinary proposals aren't getting funded at the same rate in open funding calls, that really is the case. But this is one funding source. How how applicable is this, do you think? So obviously our results are specific to the Australian Research Council's discovery program, but I would say that this same suspicion that interdisciplinary projects are not being funded is held in many different countries. So I wouldn't be surprised that if this analysis was run on other funding schemes, you would find the same result. But it is interesting that everyone talks the talk about interdisciplinarity. There is a lot of discussion about it and everyone seems to agree that it's a good thing. So why is there this disparity between what everyone's saying and what's actually happening with the money? Look, it's not an easy problem to solve. Even if you really want to see interdisciplinary projects funded, you're faced with some fairly fundamental problems. So, for example, the peer review system. It's quite difficult to find reviewers who can speak with expertise on all the different aspects of that proposal. So there might be some some practical problems to properly assessing interdisciplinary projects. Yes, so a colleague of mine submitted a fellowship application in uh, philosophy of biology and the expectations of a CV from a biologist and a philosopher are really very different. You know, a biologist even early in their career is expected to have an awful lot of publications but a lot of those will be collaborative part of large research teams. Whereas a philosopher has tended to publish fewer papers but will have more single author papers. And also their projects tend to have fewer outputs and often interdisciplinary projects will have different kinds of outputs as well. So for example, I was once a collaborator on an art science project and the major output from that project was an art exhibition. Now it was fantastically good fun but it doesn't really do my science CV any good. But you're clearly someone who does think that it is valuable to, to keep trying to do it interdisciplinary research. Yes, I, I would say that the interdisciplinary projects I've been involved in have been amongst the most intellectually stimulating and rewarding projects that I've been involved in. 
but they're challenging. They require a big investment of time and resources. It is a bit discouraging, isn't it? Sort of saying, oh, you're less likely to get funding from this. But are you hoping that your results will actually help the funding bodies work on awarding more grants to interdisciplinary projects? Well, what I hope is that interdisciplinary projects are treated fairly in the current system. So we're not saying that interdisciplinary research necessarily has a greater value than more narrowly focused projects. But of course, this paper itself is really interdisciplinary. So did you struggle to get funding for for this work? Uh, This was unfunded work. This was just done in our spare time for fun. That was Lyndall Bromham from the Australian National University talking to Shamini Bandel about researching interdisciplinarity. You can find her paper at nature.com forward slash nature. News now, and there is a political upheaval getting a lot of ink right now. Brexit. That's right, Britain held a referendum last week to decide whether to stay in the EU or leave, and 52% of UK voters said leave. Scientists across Britain and the world are reeling at the news. Reporter and editor Davide Castelvecchi is here to give us the latest. But before we get to him, let's hear from our contributor from earlier, Miguel Garcia Sancho. He's working in Edinburgh and just received an EU grant. We asked all our contributors this week for their thoughts on Brexit, and he really captured the mood. Here's Miguel. The sensation, as I entered into my my department of the University of Edinburgh, was complete depression. People are appalled. People are extremely uh, worried uh, about the future. In October, I'm going to start a five-year project with a budget of uh, 1.5 million euros, that is funded by the European Research Council. What I'm really sorry is that my younger colleagues may not be able to apply to those schemes in the future. In fact, as for today, they cannot apply. British science, and every historian know, has been built with migrants. They were welcomed here. And that was has made this country great in science and technology. That was Miguel Garcia Sancho. Davide, how well do you think he represents scientists um, quoted in our news coverage and that have been in touch with us on Twitter? I have to say that it quite captures the the sense of uh, feeling lost that exists among scientists who are um, uh, non-UK nationals working in the UK, but also UK nationals who have EU um, uh, members in their team, that they collaborate with, that have staff uh, that they hired from other U- European countries. And then there's always, let's not forget, there's also the opportunities for UK uh, young scientists who maybe are finishing up a, P- a PhD and who may maybe see their opportunities restricted by the fact that the UK is is not part of the EU anymore. And we've had a lot of people responding with with comments like that on Twitter, but one of the general themes seems to be we just we just don't know if any of these impacts that we foresee are going to come true. That's definitely the dominating theme uh, right now is uncertainty. It's, it's um, no one knows exactly what will happen and when. So we we've spoken then about the kind of human resources issues for individual scientists, but there are also impacts, aren't there, on international or kind of projects in which the EU is already involved, like the fusion project ITER. And of course, the UK as part of the EU is involved in running those projects. So what might be the implications on on enterprises like that? So there is a certain uh, amount of um, 
of um, stability guaranteed by existing existing contracts. So that, for example, that there's a um, the joint European Taurus, which is this um, this this donut shape uh, nuclear fusion machine in Oxfordshire, uh, which is a European project uh, managed by uh, the UK. Um, and there's an existing contract which will run out at the end of 2018 uh, and will probably be re- renegotiated. For ITER that you mentioned, the UK, if it will no longer be part of the European Union, it may be able to uh, negotiate being a member as an individual country, which could actually mean paying more. And then there are institutions such as CERN, where the, the, the UK is a member by itself under an international treaty, and, and that will probably not be directly affected by whether or not, you know, which countries are in the UN, which, one, which ones are not. In fact, the, the CERN itself is part in Switzerland, which is not a EU member. And some commentators have pointed out that, of course, there are repercussions for the EU. It's not just repercussions for the UK of leaving, but the EU looks different, the landscape is different. And could that affect the kinds of funding decisions that get made because the UK voice isn't there at the table? Yes, there are funding decisions and also there's ways in which uh, things are regulated um, because the the UK often represented one uh, part of the spectrum or one one pull in in negotiations. For example, our story mentioned um, research on uh, human embryonic stem stem cells. Uh, where um, a lot of individual European countries have a ban in place, and um, and the, the the UK has pushed for uh, allowing European funding for such research, but without the UK, you know, playing, you know, being such a strong voice at the table, it's unclear what's going to happen. So so far, then, scientists have been at least quite active on. Twitter to proclaim their um, indignance at the way the vote went, but is there any? I mean, what what's next if what's next for people who are thinking about this and wondering about the implications? So the implications could be um, quite severe on funding if EU you know if EU uh, grants go away and nothing else replaces them, and so there's already calls for scientists to get uh, you know to organize. Uh, and and have a serious uh, lobbying effort to uh, catch any kind of a, any kind of uh, early signs of this happening, and um, and make a case that if there is EU money um, lost, then the the national government should step in. So there's someone basically doing some accounting of all the losses of EU funding as a result of Brexit. People calling for this kind of effort to start, yes. Davide Castelvecchi, thank you for joining us. More, as always, for free at nature.com slash news or follow Nature News on Facebook or Twitter. We'll see you same time next week. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith.